This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I'm David Brenner. I'm the Vice Chancellor for Health Sciences at UC San Diego. It's my pleasure to welcome you all. I hope that you're all doing well during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is a challenging time for all of us. However, um, there are some silver linings um, with these um, new um, virtual formats. We've been able to um, connect in ways that we previously had never thought of. We're able to have large participation on meetings like today and um, able to get um, into your homes uh, and hopefully in, in a way that's convenient to you and fun for you. Um, for example, um, today we're expecting over 100 participants from 38 states in five countries which um, we had not done this type of um, interaction before. So what's today's topic? It's how the division of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine have been leaders in the pandemic. This is really an opportunity today to hear about um, what our faculty and staff, students, are doing directly in the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, to a large extent, this has been championed by the division we're going to hear about today the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine. Um, this, in addition to all the things, wonderful things it's doing with COVID-19, we also received the fantastic news very recently that this Division of Pulmonary Medicine was ranked among the top 10 in the country um, in, in this field. At UC San Diego, we have staff and faculty working across the board to treat patients with COVID-19, to ramp up our in-house testing for COVID-19, to run clinical trials, to develop new treatment options, and to conduct research for a vaccine. Um, today you'll hear from some of the physicians working and some are even volunteering outside of UCSD to combat COVID-19. The first speaker is my friend and colleague, um, Dr. Jess Mandel. He is the division chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine. Um, and he is a Kenneth M. Moser Professor of Medicine. Um, Dr. Mandel is a board-certified pulmonologist. He treats patients with a variety of respiratory conditions. His interests include um, pulmonary vascular disease, critical care medicine, and um, pulmonary vascular malformations. He has authored two textbooks and numerous scholarly articles. He's also very active in um, education and was one of the key people to develop the new curriculum for UC San Diego School of Medicine. Dr. Mandel completed um, a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He did his residency in internal medicine at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, where he served as chief resident. He earned his medical degree from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. He's board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, and critical care. Most recently, Dr. Mandel has treated many patients with COVID-19, both at UC San Diego and also volunteering to help our colleagues in Tijuana. So without further ado, it's a pleasure to introduce Dr. Mandel. Thank you very much, David, for that introduction, and it's a pleasure to speak here today. Um, I would say our division has been living and breathing COVID since March, but I want to uh, clarify that that is only a figure of speech. Um, I'm pleased to, to talk about our efforts really outside of uh, UCSD here and really talk about our collaborations across the border, near the border, and uh, things that our division has been able to do. So I want to sort of turn back the clock to around March or April of this year, and at that time, COVID was surging worldwide, particularly in New York, Italy, Spain, um, other areas as well. San Diego County cases were trending upwards. And it's very unclear how hard we are going to be hit by this tidal wave. But UCSD Medical Center is really working overtime to uh, plan for all possible scenarios. We're very focused on our capacity, our stockpiles of equipment, ventilators, medications, ability to uh, flex up in terms of staffing, all those kinds of things. At the same time, we're starting to hear a little bit about what's going on in Tijuana, really from the uh, local newspapers, articles like this in the San Diego Union Tribune, um, articles like this one from the Los Angeles Times, really uh, painting a very dire picture of what's happening in, in Tijuana and south of the border. So at this point, we really had no firsthand information and I was really immersed in um, helping lead UCSD's surge planning for critical care and working with uh, other institutions in San Diego County to be as ready as we could be. 
and we had some town hall meeting and I asked the question, does anyone have a good sense of what's going on in Tijuana? Is there anything we can do to, to help them in some way? And, you know, people said, no, you know, we, we've heard things are not good, but, but that's about it. And within an hour, I started receiving emails and texts from other people at UCSD that usually started with, I heard you're organizing aid to Tijuana. And for the first day or so, I politely corrected them. No, you know, I just asked a question. I'm not, I'm not organizing anything. I'm just, you know, curious and, and want to help if we can. Um, but by the second day, this, this, the emails and texts sort of kept coming. And it was clear that there was a lot of interest in doing what we could to help our neighbors um, but that someone had to step forward and really try and organize things. And I, I, I recognized that in addition to my day job, that this was something that I should step forward and, and do. So at that point, um, I really didn't know how to do it. I don't have contacts in Tijuana, um, but I had been working closely with uh, Dr. Nick, who is the chief medical officer of San Diego County, again, on emergency preparedness issues at hospitals across the county. And he connected me with Jim Schultz, who was the head of the San Diego County Medical Society, and Andre Smith, who really has two roles. He runs the emergency room at, at um, Sharp Chula Vista, but he also is very involved in Tijuana in terms of helping run the Cruz Roja, the Red Cross Hospital there, and really directing the ambulance service in, in Tijuana as well. Um, I also connected with uh, Dr. Lucy Horton in infectious disease and Dr. Linda Hill, and they had experience working in Tijuana really um, with regard to refugees, folks who had um, migrant caravans that had come to the border and then folks couldn't get in. They had no health insurance in Mexico and really no access to health and working with those folks. So they, they knew the territory a little bit as well. Um, but it was really uh, Dr. Smith who connected us with the uh, Baja California Secretary of Health and the Tijuana General Hospital leadership who formally invited us to visit. Because again, we, we, we didn't want to you know, show up and uh, uninvited and, and, and start barking commands, our, our uh, hope was really to, to liaison and see, ask them what we could do to, to help. And at that time, we, we really had no equipment, no official status. This was a time in which, you know, people were worried about running out of PPE, worried about running out of ventilators, and we don't have any of that stuff. We really just had ourselves. Um, and what we learned was in Tijuana, they had really uh, differentiated the hospitals uh, is either COVID or non-COVID. So three hospitals were caring for all the COVID patients. Tijuana General, the big public hospital, was carrying by far the most of that load. Um, what we found is the doctors and nurses were very, very motivated, um, but many had gotten sick with COVID. Um, the Mexican government had asked that anyone over 60 not come to work. So a lot of their specialists had been uh, sidelined for that. And so they had folks who were really stepping up who hadn't had um, as much training or experience as perhaps was ideal during this enormous public health crisis. And what we decided in consultation with them was to send a volunteer team with a doctor, a nurse, a translator if necessary, a respiratory therapist if we could, to show up every day, seven days a week, and to work collaboratively with them there and do so for, for four weeks straight really share each other's expertise and knowledge. We wanted consistency regarding MDs, so we really asked people to sign up for multiple days in a row. We didn't want different people every day sort of saying slightly different things. Um, and San Diego County Medical Society was great in advertising this, but again, about 80 or 90% of personnel um, came from UCSD, and UCSD provided us with um, outstanding administrative support as well. We, we couldn't have done it without that. So from May 18th to June 14th, um, we involved a number of people and, and made these daily visits, rounded with them daily, and really uh, made sure we spoke the same ventilator language as well as, as, as other languages. And we really focused on um, optimizing ICU care. As you all know, COVID-19 is something where there's no magic drug, there's no magic surgery. Um, we really win by um, being meticulous about fundamentals. Ventilating, ventilating people in the prone position on their stomach, optimizing the ventilator settings, avoiding complications. And we identified some equipment deficiencies with them as well. So based on the experience of these visits, we presented the hospital director at his request with detailed suggestions for improvements in multiple areas. These were enthusi enthusiastically received and we've really seen a lot of changes in how 
care is done there, and we, we believe we're seeing improvements in outcomes as well. At the same time, people donated about $35,000 to us to purchase equipment. About 20,000 of that came from the San Diego Rotary. We used that to purchase additional bedside monitoring equipment because they needed more with the um, large number of ventilated patients. We used humidifier equipment for their ventilators needed to be identified and purchased as well, um, which was a big help also. And now we've switched to um, continuing to work with them two to three times per week via teleconferences as well along with some in-person visits. So then when Mexicali heard what we were doing in Tijuana, they got in touch with us, invited us there as well. And we were very impressed with how they were um, trying to handle this flow. But you know, we, we agreed that we would work with them as well. We've made some shorter visits just because it's, it's further away, um, focused again on ven ventilator management. And I can't stress enough how much of a team effort this was. Um, not only from pulmonary and critical care medicine, but we had some volunteers from anesthesia, from surgery, critical care, and um, people were very, very generous with their time here. These are just some photos of us in Tijuana, um, as opposed to here where we isolate COVID patients in a separate room. There, the whole hospital is a, a hot zone for COVID. So when you start, you, you put on the whole um, uh, protective gear and, and you stay in that the whole day. Um, but we, we've really uh, value our relationships with our, our Mexican colleagues and been very impressed with what they're doing. Um, more recently, as I mentioned, we, we continue to work closely with them. We have four sessions per week um, via telemedicine with Tijuana and Mexicali, and we have had visits um, from our Mexican colleagues up to UCSD. Here is a bunch of folks visiting us, rounding on the COVID patients at Hillcrest with us. They've also visited our ECMO team, which Dr. Owens will talk more about as well. So it's really been a, a great relationship. In addition to that, as, as many of you know, Imperial County is the east of us and actually has the highest number of per capita cases of COVID of any county in California. Um, El, El Centro Regional Medical Center, um, with whom we work, has been uh, yeah, it's working very valiantly to deal with their surge. We've also organized telemedicine support and in-person support for them. So really, I think this, this has reinforced the, the lessons that these diseases don't stop at the borders and that uh, working with our, our colleagues uh, in Mexicali and Tijuana has really, I think, helped everyone. It's, it's certainly built our knowledge. We've benefited from their experience and vice versa. I think it's really helped patients on both sides of the border. Um, I think all of us are very happy with these collaborations and we hope to really expand them further into research and educational areas and really to maintain them beyond the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So let me at this point um, shift things over to my colleague Atul Malhotra who will discuss the research efforts led by our division to better understand COVID-19. So uh, Dr. Malhotra has been a good friend for nearly 30 years. He's the Peter C. Farrell Presidential Chair in, uh, of Medicine at UCSD. He is also the Research Chief for the division. He's a board-certified pulmonologist and intensivist, and in the sleep clinic provides a full spectrum of diagnostic and therapeutic services to patients with sleep-related disorders. Dr. Malhotra has published more than 310 original manuscripts in leading journals, plus 220 reviews and chapters. He's a principal and co-investigator on numerous NIH grants related to sleep apnea and serves as a reviewer for many leading journals. Thank you, Atul. Well, thank you very much, Jess, for that generous introduction. So I'm gonna talk about the research efforts related to COVID that have been going on through pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine, as well as physiology. And unfortunately, I won't have time to do this justice, but I'll try and give you a bit of an overview. And the story starts with a success story. Uh, Dan Sweeney is shown there in the photograph. Uh, and this is the remdesivir story that was published in the New England Journal in May of uh, May 22nd, 2020. What you have to realize is the first case of COVID that happened in the United States was I think January 21st of 2020. And between January 21st and May of 22nd, there's a New England Journal of Medicine publication showing that proportion recovering on the y-axis and days on the x-axis, you can see some improvement with remdesivir. And if you told me a year ago that you could get this study from start to finish done in three years, as opposed to three months, I wouldn't have believed you. And so to get from zero to 60 that quickly is really unheard of. And the remdesivir is one of the success stories that we've had. And you can see that Dan Sweeney is one of the co-authors on that. Connie Benson and others have uh, helped a lot with this initiative. And so remdesivir is one uh, success story. There's a tocilizumab study, which is actually today being sent to the New England Journal of Medicine for peer review. 
I was uh, honored to get the burden as well as the uh, honor of being a global principal investigator for that. That's a drug that uh, is an anti-inflammatory that works through interleukin-6, as opposed to remdesivir, which is an antiviral. And the primary outcome for this tocilizumab study is negative. We didn't meet the mortality uh, outcomes. But there's some interesting trends, and uh, you can see on the graph here the proportion uh, doing better is slightly better with um, tocilizumab, although uh, not a definitive result, and so further work is clearly needed. I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the basic work that's being done as well. Michael Lamb is shown here in the photograph, and he's using a technique called CSRNA. It's called capped short RNA sequencing. If you've never heard of that, you're not alone, because I'd never heard of it six months ago. It was a technique developed in, in the last year or two that's looking at what they call non-coding RNA. So if you're familiar with DNA, becomes mRNA through transcription, and then you get translation for proteins. There's a lot of RNA that's non-coding. What Michael can do is take these techniques in an unbiased way. The details of these uh, graphs are not particularly important for today. What we can do is take samples from COVID patients and uh, sequence these different uh, non-coding RNAs. And with those techniques, he's found unique targets already in individual COVID patients. And so uh, Mazin Oddish, others have uh, gathered uh, uh, samples from COVID patients who are in our intensive care units. And in some cases, there's uh, NF-kappa B that uh, seems quite active, which is a transcription factor important in inflammation. Others seem to have in interferon pathways that are activated. And the cool thing about these techniques is we can take individual patients, uh, do these sort of genomic analyses on their non-coding RNA, and then Michael can sort of predict who's gonna respond which treatment. It's really quite an exciting area of drug discovery. In addition, uh, John Shi is a vascular biologist with whom we work closely, who's been working on something called AMP kinases. What are the AMP kinases is a molecule that's important in metabolism and other factors. And John Shi actually predicted that um, metformin, which is a drug commonly used for diabetes, might have some role in COVID. And my role in this, despite being lead author, was to say that doesn't make any sense, but I was wrong because there's a, a fair amount of data now emerging. Jing Hong Li is one of our faculty who actually got some data from Wuhan, China, which we've analyzed and is now under peer review. And subsequent to those analyses, two other groups have corroborated our findings that metformin appears to be associated with good outcomes in COVID disease. The nice part of this is it's a cheap generic drug, which is readily available. And if it pans out in randomized trials, this actually may be a useful advance. There's some other uh, uh, work that's ongoing using deep learning and using the sort of machine learning techniques via computers. Uh, this is predicting the need for mechanical ventilation from electronic medical records. Supreet Sachikumar is shown here. Shamim Namadi is one of the junior faculty in bioinformatics with whom we work closely. And my contribution to this was being skeptical once again. And I said, I can predict who needs a ventilator based on the heart rate, the respiratory rate, the pH, and uh, the saturation. In fact, they took my model and tested it, and within seconds disproved uh, that what I was saying was accurate. The area under the curve reflects how accurate the models are, and the model I predicted was about 75% in terms of area under the curve was 0.75. And the standard models that are out there all had areas under the curve that are relatively modest. With this machine learning or deep learning algorithm, in fact, we got an area under the curve that was 0.89 that was shown there. It's up to 0.94 now as well. You can say these models may not mean much, but within UCSD, we have a training set as well as a validation set, suggesting more than 90% of the time we can predict who needs the ventilator using the computer algorithm, and it's better than expert clinicians are doing that. And just so we were sure it wasn't just some artifact at UCSD, we also got data from Mass General and showed very similar results there, where we can predict the area into the curve with the computer algorithm better than standard uh, clinical criteria. So I'm showing this for two reasons. Number one is to show the computer algorithm can predict who needs a ventilator better than expert clinicians. But the other is to say that Laura Brenner is the daughter of uh, David Brenner, and now we call David uh, Laura's father rather than the other way around. There's also some work going on in terms of respiratory pathophysiology in uh, COVID. So Tatum Simonson is shown there. She's doing a lot of work on the genetics of control of breathing. The Hispanic Latino community seems to be particularly susceptible, at least from the patients we're seeing, and she has some ideas about that as well. We have some work going on in Sweden as well as in Sydney through multidisciplinary collaborations. We have a big grant with the Department of Defense that's currently pending. Uh, in terms of the mechanics of the lung, and there's some scarring in the lung that's seen there. Jisha Joshua is shown here. She's very interested in the scarring or fibrosis that occurs. In fact, David Brenner, uh, our vice chancellor, is also very interested in scarring 
in the lung as well as in the liver. And then Amy Bellinghausen is shown here, and she's very interested in recovery from critical illness, and she's studying these ICU for COVID survivors. Some of you know I'm interested in sleep, and there were some good things that came out of COVID. It turned out people were sleeping more during the COVID pandemic, during the lockdown. And so Laura Crotty Alexander uh, did some Twitter surveys, and this is actually now published in the American Journal of Cardiology. It turns out most risk factors for heart attack were getting worse during the pandemic. People were sedentary, they were gaining weight, they were smoking more, uh, other things were uh, going in the wrong direction. But in fact, sleep improved, and concomitant with that, we've seen about a 50% reduction in myocardial infarctions. That was published in the New England Journal from the Kaiser Group, saying that heart attacks are less during COVID. And so is sleep, increased sleep responsible for reductions in heart attack seen during the COVID pandemic? It's a Twitter survey, so we can't say too much about mechanism, but at least it's possible. We've also done some work on sleep apnea and how that may be potentially a risk factor for COVID. And we have some data saying that uh, CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure is now being used more during COVID than before, perhaps because people are sleeping more. We've also done some work regarding advocacy for COVID. Venkatesh Ramnath, you saw previously, uh, this principle of do no harm, talking about the importance of clinical trials and embracing technology are all things that have come out of COVID. You might say, why not just give the drug and, and see how it goes, what do you have to lose? Well, what we've delineated in some of these reports is the idea that these drugs have side effects and just giving them without proven efficacy can be problematic. For things like hydroxychloroquine, you can deplete the stores of that, which are necessary drugs for rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and some forms of malaria. But then also we'll never quite learn the truth. If you start giving drugs willy-nilly, you never quite know what works. So take home message for this is that COVID has been a good opportunity to reinforce rigorous science and to embrace innovation and technology. One of our nurses also made some observations that were, uh, we published on. So uh, it turns out that 96% of doctors, but 39% of nurses thought that prone positioning, lying face down, was a good idea for patients with COVID. There's a major disconnect there that was published on uh, in the American Journal of Critical Care. And so Shannon uh, Cotton here has done some work on challenging and challenges and solutions through multidisciplinary team efforts to get everybody working together, the importance of teamwork. So take home message here is that there's a disconnect sometimes between members of the caregiving team. This disconnect requires teamwork and communication. And hopefully that's something that's gonna live long after COVID that we need to work together, together better because this disconnect really is unacceptable. There's other active projects I won't have time to get into in very much detail. Tim Fernandez is working with the Timmy Group on some anticoagulant things. There's a virus registry seeking to get 50,000 patients around the world with COVID into a registry. Abdur Hussein's been working on that. We have some work on gel salon and a, a CD6 anti-inflammatory that's ongoing. Uh, Dr. Uh, Owens will talk more about the ACMO uh, uh, initiatives, some work on mesenchymal stem cells, we also have some rapid autopsy work that Laurie Karate Alexander and others are doing where we're getting tissue sample, unfortunately, from those who pass away. So I'll summarize by saying UCSD pulmonary has risen to the challenge of the COVID pandemic. Despite markedly increased demand on all of us for, in the ICUs, we've made important contributions to the war on COVID through clinical, basic, and translational multidisciplinary research, plus education as well as advocacy. Our next generation, as you can see, is quite strong. There's a lot of young people doing very clever work. There are many exciting areas of research, likely yield discoveries and progress even after the pandemic is long gone, hopefully. And I will say we'll win this battle via academic strength and via multidisciplinary teamwork. So I'll stop there. My next task is to introduce Alex Rose, and I'm giving this introduction with her permission. She um, went to medical school at Baylor College in Houston, and then she did her residency training at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School in Boston. And she did her fellowship here, and she's now one of our Rockstar junior faculty in pulmonary and critical care. What's confidential that she's allowed me to share is that she actually became a patient with COVID. She spent so much time in the ICUs despite having a young baby at home. Um, she was in the ICUs and actually got exposed and infected with the COVID virus. And so she's been a champion at coming back to the ICUs afterwards and still doing a great job taking care of our patients. So she's gonna speak next and uh, I thank you all for your attention. Uh, thank you, Atul. I'm just going to share some slides. Um, here we go. So, um, yes, as Atul said, uh, I, I unfortunately or fortunately had a, a very mild case of COVID from which I am now fully recovered and returned to my work in the ICU. 
and I'm going to tell you a little bit today about some of the lessons I think that we have learned over the past five or six months of taking care of these very sick patients with COVID-19. Um, first, I think a picture is worth a thousand words, and these are some really fabulous photos taken by one of our critical care nurses named Angela Klinkhamer. And it just, I just wanted to set the scene because our, our intensive care unit, especially where we largely try to cohort COVID patients, has become a very different um, appearing ICU than normal. And one of the things you'll notice at first is all of these warning signs, the stop, the precaution signs, um, and all of the gear needed to take care of these patients. And the number of, you know, in IV pumps you'll see outside the room for the ease of manipulation of the medications that these patients are on. Um, there's just an incredible amount of work that goes into caring for one single critically ill COVID patient. There's also a lot of teamwork. You'll often see two critical care nurses in, um, in a patient's room helping each other out um, because again, the amount of care each patient requires is, is truly significant. And this is one of our respiratory therapists who is geared up to go in a patient's room. He's wearing a papper. That's what our pappers look like. Um, and it's really uh, almost like a, you know, a space-age space suit required to, to provide care for these patients safely and effectively. So what we've really learned, I think, in the last five or six months, and I think we have the, the outcomes to support this, is that you know, COVID-19 care really involves very good critical care. Um, doing things that we already know that are evidence-based medicine in the treatment of critically ill patients with ARDS. Um, now, COVID-19 is increasingly recognized to be a systemic illness, and you'll read a lot about the different organ manifestations of the disease, but primarily what we see and address in the intensive care unit is the pulmonary manifestation of the disease in critical illness, which is ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And the main way of managing that is, is truthfully supportive care. And what that means is putting patients on ventilators when they have impending respiratory failure, optimizing um, their mechanical ventilation based on good practices, best practices with low tidal volume ventilation, um, a relatively high amount of PEEP, which is positive end expiratory pressure, um, supporting their hemodynamics, which often can change, uh, especially these patients have very high fevers, they can be hypotensive, making sure that all of their organs are well perfused is critical. And we have been frequently using prone positioning in almost all of our patients. Um, very rarely is there a contraindication to prone positioning. And this is very labor intensive. Um, we usually put somebody on their belly for about 16 to 18 hours at a time. And that can involve you know, three people in the room or up to six people in the room, depending on the patient's size, how many lines and tubes there are, um, in order to do that safely and protect the airway um, and all the lines and tubes in place. Um, identifying secondary infections early, I know there will be a lot of questions about you know, the rate of secondary infections. And we do see um, secondary infections, uh, mainly bacterial pneumonias um, and occasionally urinary tract infections. And, and these are related to the length of time patients are spending on ventilators. Uh, we cannot undervalue the uh, excellent and, and attention to detail that the nursing staff has provided these patients. And the ICU bundle, which is basically a checklist that we go through every day on rounds to ensure that we're not missing any key components to a patient's care, such as prophylaxis against blood clots, all stress ulcer prophylaxis, um, and then ensuring that every day families are being updated and that we've discussed the overall plan of care in terms of next steps. Uh, we are an ECMO center, and that's something that Dr. Owens will talk to you about extensively in, in the next talk. Um, and honestly, the overall overarching theme of providing care to a COVID-19 patient who is critically ill is that teamwork is essential and that these patients require time. And the length of stay on the whole, and I'll show you some numbers, has been long. Um, and it's something that, you know, 
we are used to typically taking care of one or two a patients with ARDS at a time. There are many causes of ARDS besides COVID-19. But now that we're caring for 10, 12, 15 of these patients in, in an ICU at any given time, um, we are appreciating the amount of time it truly takes for patients to recover from this disease. One of the biggest challenges I think that we have had in the COVID-19 era has really been communication. And there is an issue you know, with communication in the intensive care unit itself because people, once they are donned and wearing their PPE in the room, um, it's difficult sometimes to communicate. We use walkie-talkies frequently to convey you know, changes in a patient's clinical status or the need for new medications and things like that. But the brunt of the communication issues, I think, I think unfortunately, can fall on family members. Um, early on in the disease, in the pandemic, we had a fairly strict no-visitor policy, and that has evolved over, over time. But if you are a critically ill patient with COVID-19 in our ICU, um, we, are, we are typically not allowing um, family members to come and visit. Now, this is um, compounded by the fact that some of these patients were transferred from other institutions and even other counties and are now isolated by distance geographically, um, as well as an overall lack of experience that family members have with dealing with critically ill patients. And then unfortunately, um, we have had multiple patients um, in whom family members have been affected in, in more than one family member. We've had siblings, um, you know, uh, parents and children, and, and certain families have truly been devastated by this disease. So we make significant efforts every, every day um, between Zoom calls, FaceTime, and phone calls, often uh, with the translator's assistance to update families to the best of our abilities. Now our ICU outcomes, um, the number of patients who have presented to UCSD who have ended up in the ICU is about 176 out of 404, so that's 43%. And our mortality rate is actually um, lower than a lot of the reported data in the literature, uh, both for ARDS and for COVID-19, and that's about 26%. And that number still holds true for the transfer patients we have accepted, many of whom have been critically ill for one, two, or even three weeks prior to their arrival at UCSD. And as I mentioned, the average IC length of stay is on the whole quite long, at about 13 days, but can be as, as long as one patient, I think, has been there or was there for 78 days. Now, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, you know, why do people remain sick for so long? Why do people shed virus for so long? Even um, critically ill patients in our ICU sometimes test positive for weeks on end. Um, and one of the big questions that our department is going to be investigating and assisting with is a phenomenon called post-ICU syndrome. Um, it's increasingly recognized that people who have been critically ill and stay in the ICU for um, any length of time, but especially those who, um, who are sedated and on mechanical ventilation, are at high risk for a syndrome that entails um, deficits both cognitively, psychologically, and functionally months to even years after their disease. And we are lucky to have a post-ICU clinic run by Dr. Owens and Dr. Bellinghausen that Dr. Malhotra also mentioned to help address this um, probably growing body of patients who will be COVID-19 survivors of critical illness. And similarly, given how much time and energy is invested in these patients' care, and yes, there are some outcomes that are not desirable. There are patients who do not survive this disease. Um, and we already going into this pandemic had somewhat of a, an increased, increasing number of caregivers of critically ill patients, physicians, respiratory therapists, nurses, who were already experiencing uh, burnout. And that is going to become an issue, I think, that we will continue to, to investigate at UCSD um, and we're hoping uh, and mitigate in the, in the future as we have been caring for these very sick patients. And with that, um, I thank you for your time and attention. And I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Bob Owens. 
Um, Dr. Bob Owens is uh, also Boston trained uh, at the Brigham, like many of the other members of this team. And he is internationally and nationally renowned, has given lectures on you know, sleep disordered breathing, other topics like asthma and COPD, I think. But most importantly and relevant to our discussion today, he is our medical ICU director at Jacobs Medical Center. And he is also very, very involved in the ECMO team and in the mobile ECMO unit. And that will be the topic of his discussion today. And with that, I will let you speak, Bob. Thank you very much, Alex. Today, I'm gonna to talk to you about uh, something called ECMO, which you can see it stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And I think just some of the themes as I've been listening to Alex, Atul, and Jess speak, thinking about teamwork, thinking about clinical excellence locally and regionally, and also research. Um, ECMO was really has sort of been the pinnacle of ICU care for some of these COVID patients. So um, one of the things that uh, ECMO provides is it's an advanced form of life support that can be used for severe lung or heart failure. And it really is a series of tubes and a pump. I'll show you a picture of this that removes blood from the body. It takes carbon dioxide away from that blood, puts oxygen back into the blood and returns the blood to the patient. And this allows the lungs to rest and it provides times for lungs to heal. So this is a diagram of ECMO when it's used to support the lungs. And so in this diagram, you can see that there's a large cannula about the size of a garden hose, which removes blood from the patient and there's a pump which pulls the blood out of the patient, pushes the blood through a device which provides fresh oxygen into the blood, and then the blood is returned via, again, one of these large cannulas uh, close to the patient's heart, and then the blood is pumped through the body. Now, this has to be done every minute. Uh, it's five liters of blood per minute, and if this flow is interrupted, uh, then the patient may not survive. So, as you can imagine, this requires special equipment. May not be a surprise, but this equipment turns out to cost a fair amount of money. And most importantly, it really requires a team of specialists. And so cardiothoracic surgeons and cardiologists place these special cannulas. Uh, lung doctors, uh, anesthesiologists take care of the patients. Perfusionists are experts at this ECMO machine, and they and nurses run the machine. And there, there literally is a cast of thousands, uh, physical therapists, pharmacists, palliative care, who all help support these patients. And I'll talk more about our team efforts. Now, ECMO was used in the most severe cases of lung failure. And so on the left, this is a patient who uh, has generally okay lungs. It's, you know, I'm sure my colleagues on the call would, would have findings here in the x-ray, but normally when the lungs don't have fluid in them, uh, they turn out to be black on an x-ray. They're mostly air and the x-rays pass through the, the lungs. What we're seeing with COVID are uh, lungs like this here on the right, lungs that are full of fluid uh, and the lungs are, are essentially whited out. And if you look closely, you can see this large tube here. Uh, this is the ECMO cannula returning fresh blood into the patient. So ECMO is needed when proning and ventilators aren't enough. You've heard about proning and, uh, and obviously that's been in the lay press quite a bit. This is a patient who's on their stomach. There's a ventilator here. One of our respiratory therapists is in the room making adjustments, but this is the ECMO machine here in the foreground. And with the, even with proning, even with the ventilator, uh, it's this ECMO machine which is keeping this patient alive. Now, the main thing, or one of the amazing things about ECMO is that patients who are on ECMO can still have interactions with us. We can mobilize them and they can communicate. So this is one of our patients on ECMO. His breathing tube has been moved into his trachea. You can see this large tube of uh, blood coming back, bringing fresh blood into the patient. And he's sitting up. There are nurses here, physical therapists, and we're gonna try to get this patient walking. And this is not something that we can do when patients are usually on ventilators. On the right, the other thing that this patient was able to do, this is an iPad, and the patient was actually able to have a Zoom conference with his family. This was the first time the patient's family had seen him after 20 days on a ventilator on the ECMO machine. So again, these are things that we can do on ECMO that we can't 
necessarily do while patients are on a ventilator. Now in 2017, UCSD formalized the ECMO process. We wanted to make sure we knew who we wanted to provide ECMO to, how we were gonna do it, what equipment we would use to ensure the highest quality care. So this is our logo. And what's shown here is a picture of our ECMO round. So once a week, we come together. There are all sorts of people in this photo, pulmonologists, cardiologists, anesthesiologists, physical therapists, occupational therapists. And every week we talk about our cases on ECMO. What's the latest evidence? How are we going to improve our outcomes? Now, this is a busy slide, but we had gone through all of that and then COVID hit. And we knew that we had a life-saving therapy and we needed to provide it. And so starting back here in April, we felt we could take care of about four patients uh, on ECMO at a time at UCSD. And over time, this blue line has increased. We've, we've educated more people, we've gotten more equipment, we're able to provide more patients with ECMO. The other things to point out, there are these yellow stars here. Uh, this represents a patient that we had to go out and get from another hospital because they were so sick. And I'll talk more about that. You also see some red stars here uh, there are times when we have had good candidates uh, for ECMO, but we simply did not have enough capacity either at UCSD or in the, in the county. This is a great article uh, in the Union Trib called On the Bleeding Edge of the COVID-19 Fight. I'd highly recommend you, you read this article and, uh, and there's a video, takes about five minutes, and you can see the title here, UCSD team travels at a moment's notice to invasively oxygenate the blood of dying patients. And it talks about this man, our first patient, Mr. Al Saadi, um, who survived COVID because he was placed on ECMO and was able to go home. Our ECMO survival is usually about 75%, but internationally, the rate of survival with COVID is much less, usually about 50%. So far, we have placed 26 patients on ECMO, and we're very proud that our survival, unfortunately, it's not 100%, but we're doing better than the international numbers at about 65%. And has been, it has been mentioned that some of these patients can take a while. We have a patient leaving today after 45 days of ECMO. He's a 48-year-old pediatrician, uh, and he's going to leave the hospital today. Now, just a quick word about mobile ECMO. Few centers have ECMO. This is a very specialized treatment. Uh, patients who require ECMO may be too sick to travel, and so we need to go to that local hospital put a patient on ECMO, bring them back. We've done that 15 times. And our team has gone to all these hospitals throughout the county, as well as El Centro Medical Center. And no other hospital in San Diego has this capability. I wanna call out uh, Travis Palema, our CT surgeon, Cassia Yi, who's our ECMO coordinator, and Mazin Odish, uh, one of our junior faculty in our division. I have many pictures of this team going to different places, different times of night and day and using different, you know, ambulance, plane, helicopter. Um, and they've really um, been able to go at a moment's notice to help bring patients back so we can help save them. So ECMO at UCSD, it's a powerful life-saving therapy. We've been increasing our capacity and our capabilities. We've provided leadership for the county and we're pushing the envelope. We really wanna be the best in Southern California. This is something we will do for COVID and for non-COVID cases. And if you don't believe me, this was a 21-year-old Marine who was um, dying at Tri-City Hospital. Uh, his parents flew across the country to be there. He came uh, to us on a Friday night, and uh, we were able to discharge him about five days later. So thank you very much uh, for your attention and the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you so much. I want to congratulate everyone on, on um, giving amazing talks. We've gotten a lot of questions, and they range from very, very basic science to very, very practical things. So let's, uh, we don't have that much time, so let's try to get as many questions as possible with um, short um, questions and short answers. I'm going I'm to try to cluster them, though, into groups to make it maybe easier. There's a whole group of questions about proning, ventilators, um, and their settings, and ECMO, because these are, these are not new techniques, but somehow they became very popular during COVID-19. And, and the questions generally are, is there something specific about COVID-19 that, that, that we're treating these patients different, or is it just that we're getting more experience and, and using, using old technologies in new ways? So anyone, I guess that would be best for Robert? Sure, uh, I can speak to that. So certainly in the case with ECMO, you know, this was a technology that we had and we were using. And I think that 
the severity of illness we saw with COVID, the, the vast numbers of patients who were getting sick at once uh, accelerated our pace of development. And so, you know, we had the ability to take care of four patients at a time. We stepped up so that we could take care of up to 10 at a time. Um, we had this idea that we could go get patients at other hospitals, and we were working on that, not slowly, but not as rapidly as what we had to do once COVID really hit and people needed help at El Centro and many other hospitals. So I think that it's been uh, a catalyst to make changes that we wanted to do. Uh, and it, it sort of gave us that push, hey, we need to do this more quickly. So the, the other question was proning and the ventilator settings. Is there something special about the COVID-19 lung that's different than other acute pulmonary diseases that we're doing different things differently than we did? Are we, are we treating patients differently? from March to now that we've learned things about, about the COVID-19 long, they're different. I'll, I don't know, Alexandra, who, who would like to answer? Uh, sure, I can, I can speak to that. And I, I think Paul and Jess and Bob could also chime in. I'm um, sure they can. <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think early on, there was a lot of discussion in, in both medical literature and in the media that COVID-19 lung is not, not ARDS. It's something different than ARDS. And, I think that we can speak from our personal experience that um, the patients that we put on ventilators, uh, both radiographically and clinically, they, they, they do meet criteria for ARDS. They clinically have ARDS. And um, early on, there was a push to intubate earlier um, to prevent the risk of transmission of disease by using kind of more aggressive, non-invasive ways of giving oxygen to patients. Um, and so when we initially would put patients on the ventilator, it would look like their lungs were not very stiff and people were a little bit puzzled by this. But really, it was just early, earlier on in the phase of, you know, the overall exudative phase of ARDS and not, you know, not in the middle of the disease process where somebody might otherwise be intubated without COVID, a COVID-19 diagnosis. So, no, these patients are behaving like they have ARDS. And the practices we're doing, um, you know, lung protective ventilatory strategies. These are things that we apply to every patient in the intensive care unit. And prone positioning has been shown to have a mortality benefit and is something that we do use um, on a normal non-COVID basis, but we have just increased the need based on the number of patients who meet this criteria for proning. And so we're just doing it much more frequently. Yeah, I, I would just add, it's sometimes frustrating to, I think my friends who are not medical, that. We don't have something dramatic where we swoop in and we fix people. Um, and I think we've learned that uh, it's meticulousness and it is quality and it is consistency that really carries the day. And I feel like, you know, we're all a little bit more like uh, pastry chefs than we were uh, formerly in that every drizzle, every adjustment really has to be ideal. And you really see the results from doing that. You know, these patients have a long course. And uh, you know it's, it's only as strong as the weakest link, and it's really a team sport. And everyone um, performing at a very high level really um, tends to produce the better outcomes that we're seeing. If I could add one comment, uh, we, we published a little bit on prone positioning over the years, and certainly it does work in other forms of respiratory failure, as Alex and others have said. We've seen a mortality benefit in some of the studies, including meta-analyses, but the data indicated people weren't using it adequately, and that's where we get into kind of barriers to implementation. I think improved communication within the team. The nurses don't think it works. The doctors do think it works. We need to be on the same team and row together, and I think COVID has been a good opportunity to improve communication like that. And it is a big commitment, I mean, physically a big commitment, so you have to really convince everyone to do it. Um, here's a good question for a tool. Actually, I like this question. So the question is, I didn't make this one up. Um, how do you progress from pneumonia to pulmonary fibrosis? How do you progress from pneumonia to pulmonary fibrosis? That's a question I would normally ask you, David. So. I know, but I asked it first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the short answer is we don't know. The, the role of inflammation in pulmonary fibrosis has gone back and forth over the years. Many people believe that scarring or fibrosis is one of the manifestations where the fibroblasts get activated and lay down collagen and make the lung much stiffer. When you look at the data in aggregate in ARDS, in severe respiratory failure, eventually the lung recovers. If you look at survivors of ARDS, the lung is eventually normal or near normal. 
with COVID, we don't know. It's too soon to say. We're certainly certainly seeing some scarring in cases that um, uh, survive. But uh, I think if we wait a few months, eventually the lungs should recover. But certainly part of what we're looking at is ways to accelerate that recovery and improve people's performance during recovery. And that's part of what we get at with post-ICU recovery uh, clinics. There are several questions that um, Alexandra alluded to that she expected on um, secondary infections, in particular, uh, as, um, aspergillosis more common um, as a secondary infection. Um, but just generally, is there something special about COVID-19 or just simply reflects very prolonged hospitalization in the ICU with intubation? Yeah, so I, I don't think that we are particularly seeing high levels of invasive aspergillus infection. I, th I think one comes to mind, one case. Um, you know, that, that might be a patient or patients who are presenting with something like that may, may have an underlying kind of immunocompromised state, I, I would venture to guess. We are more commonly seeing traditional bacterial pneumonia superimposed on a COVID-19 pneumonia, and, and that is unfortunately not terribly uncommon, especially when somebody remains on a ventilator for two or three or even four weeks at a time. And, um, you know, we do see a, a change in their clinical status when that happens. You know, there usually is a new fever, a new um, white blood cell count, something that triggers our investigation of this. And, and we've been, I hope, you know, ideally um, identifying and treating these very early in their course. Then there are a whole series of questions about um, different therapies. What's the status of different therapies? Where, where are they? And I'll, just, I'll just read them off. Anyone who wants to take one can take it. The first one that I saw was um, on anticoagulants. What's the role of anticoagulants in COVID? Yeah, I can comment, but I'd be interested in other comments as well. So um, Tim Fernandez is one of our faculty in the pulmonary vascular team that takes care of the thromba and endorectomy patients and, and others. And he's involved in a, a, a TIMI study. A TIMI is a big cardiovascular group and they're studying anticoagulants now. It's a pragmatic design and so people are allowed to use whatever anticoagulants they use. They're using full-dose unfractionated heparin as one recommendation, Lovenox or Inoxaparin as another, and then there's some discussion about Plavix or Clopidogrel, an antiplatelet agent as well. So right now, I think the jury is out. We don't know whether anticoagulants are good, bad, or indifferent in COVID, but certainly we're studying it carefully. But what was the, even the rationale for what, why are people even studying that? What, what, where did that come from? Was there increased coagulation seen in, in these patients? So, so yeah, there, there's a, a blood test called a D-dimer, which is an index of clotting, and that can be quite high in some of these patients. The experience out of China, we had uh, Dr. Cao from uh, Wuhan, China, present our grand rounds uh, remotely, and he mentioned that they were giving anticoagulants to their patients empirically, and the reason was that they were seeing a lot of clotting. But the problem is it's one of those things, it's, it's, it's what you look for. And so if you look at any ARDS patient, there's potentially evidence of clotting that can be seen in the pulmonary circulation uh, as a result. And most of the studies on anticoagulants and ARDS have not really shown uh, much in the way of benefit. More recently, however, there was a New England Journal paper on something called endotheolitis, where they're seeing some inflammation in the blood vessels. And that was also perhaps a substrate for clotting, but the bottom line is we don't know if anticoagulants work or not. And I'm a bit skeptical, but obviously I need to be uh, uh, proven with randomized trials that they're beneficial. Right. I think we've gone to be a little more aggressive with the preventative doses of anticoagulation. Um, which we think is the, the best way to split the difference. We've certainly seen hemorrhagic complications from uh, folks who have been on full anticoagulation. I think that's made us cautious about uh, prescribing that for everyone. And, you know, David, uh, a tool had mentioned that, uh, you know, how impressive it was that we had a great study, a high quality study done within just a few months of the epidemic. The problem is the signal to noise ratio is at times been very low. There's been so many studies in the literature and not of high quality. And so people present, you know, I tried this therapy and you should try it too because I had one good outcome. And I think we have really tried to stick with good, uh, you know, standard care and then enroll people in, in high quality randomized control trials. And I think we have seen many complications from other people at other hospitals where they got so many different therapies uh, and we're starting to learn that some of those were not good ideas. And, and so it's really been the Wild West. And, and I think as a, as a profession, we're going to have to look at that in the, the journals as well. You know, what was the right mix of getting the word out but maintaining high standards? Here's one that's been resuscitated. In early disease, 
is there a role for hydroxychloroquine zithromycin? I think it's important for us all to be humble. This is a new disease, and I think we all need to, you know, be open-minded. And I think as a tool did a nice job of, of talking about really early on in the in the pandemic, we we came to a crossroads, which is that are we going to um, try to be as evidence-based as possible, um, or are we going to try to, you know, not miss some something that might be helpful to our patients because someone reported it as such. And I think those are very complex arguments. And I know we had um, a lot of discussions among ourselves, a lot of discussions with patient families. Um, but UCSD as an institution really, I, I think, made the right decision on um, being really focused on evidence-based interventions. And at the same time, really trying to um, involve people in high quality um, you know, clinical trials. I think this is the way that got us to treatments for HIV that were very effective. Um, this has gotten us to, to um, in a variety of conditions, oncology, et cetera. And I think we really need to stick with that path. So I think with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in the same way as many other potential treatments, I'm keeping an open mind. I think right now the evidence in favor of their, um, you know, being helpful just hasn't risen to the level where we um, feel comfortable prescribing them. Right. I'm, I'm going to use a few remaining minutes to, to switch from therapy to people have very, very practical questions. So let me, let me try to get a few of those out, okay? So, so everyone wants to know what they're supposed to do for Thanksgiving. Are they allowed to see their family? <laughs> what, 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 yeah, what kind of social distance should they practice? Should they, should they fly? I, I would just say I have a lot of neighbors and family, like all of us probably have many people asking. And I think that there is this assumption that the people that we're taking care of um, uh, are sick in some way. And, and I just, I would tell, I tell my own family to be careful. You know, we are taking care of, of healthy people who, you know, don't have other medical problems and they're young. And I'm not saying you have to be, you know, crazy, but th this is, you know, it's not a hoax. And um, so please be careful. And I think, you know, while cases are still going on, got to be careful. Right. Are they be flying? I think we're all going to be working on things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just to, just to reiterate, I, you know, I didn't get this, I didn't get COVID from flying. I didn't get COVID from traveling. I haven't seen family. And, uh, you know, whether I got it in the hospital or in the community, I think is unclear. And I am young and healthy. And it took me a good four weeks to start to feel normal again. And I was not a hospitalized patient. So uh, that was a very humbling experience for me. And, you know, God forbid, I, I would have infected my, my husband or my child or, or other family members. But I think it's something to keep in mind that, you know, this is hopefully temporary with good, good um, social distancing, masking practices, and ideally a vaccine in the near future. But, you know, it is in some ways preventable from getting the disease with those practices. And that would obviously be our preferences, ICU doctors. Let me, let me slip in two more practical questions. First is that if for non-COVID-related um, illnesses, what are you telling people about going to the hospital? If they have an elective surgery, if they need a knee replaced, or not, not for cosmetic surgery, but things that can be put off, what, what are your recommendations? They have to, but they need to do it. I think we've seen a lot of folks who have gotten into trouble um, by putting off things that shouldn't have been put off. Um, we worry about folks not coming to the hospital when they should with chest pain, with stroke symptoms, with a whole variety of things. I think, um, you know, hospitals in general, certainly UCSD, but I think even beyond that, um, I think have gotten very, very good at, at, um, at, at keeping patients safe when they need to be seen, um, starting in the emergency department and, and all throughout. Um, so, no, we, we, I think we really need to send the message that important health care should not be deferred, um, and doing so really can put you at risk. And the, the last one was, was there were several questions about if you are a pulmonary patient originally, if you have underlying COPD, if you have asthma, if you have some other type of pulmonary disease, where does that put you with respect to risk of COVID-19? You know, I think there's some uh, debate about this in the literature. There was actually suggested that asthma patients may be protected in some way, but I don't think that's true. I think in general, patients with respiratory disease are at risk of the complications of COVID. I think for two reasons. One is that perhaps their reserve is less than somebody that's normal, young, and healthy, uh, but perhaps the other is that the diseases can interact and stirring up inflammation, and these things can't be good for inflammatory diseases. And so I think they are risk factors, and certainly... There's not a lot we can do about that other than 
as uh, Dr. Mandel just said, uh, taking your medications and seeing your doctor and making sure your asthma and COPD are under good control. Don't smoke, don't vape, social distancing, hand hygiene, yeah, <clears throat> wearing masks, also, all, all yeah. those things are good preventative strategies. Okay, I wanna thank you all. This is really tremendous. Uh, you, there were far more questions. What I always write, which I shouldn't have said this before I asked you, I always say that the people, that you guys will respond to the questions I didn't get to. So you have your homework assignment for today. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is great. Thank you to everyone. And thank you to the participants. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.